All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Hammer Time 1987 podcast, the podcast where all we do is win, and we're going to do some more winning today. I have a very special guest host with me. She is a award-winning speaker, world traveler, and arguably Western New York's best chef. I'm joined by Hillary Diodato. Hillary, welcome to the show. <laughs> oh. Thanks, Adam. Hey, Good to be are. here. Glad it's uh, Memorial Day. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for being here, Hillary. Um, why don't we get right into it? We're going to touch a couple of different topics, but uh, the big elephant in the room as we are uh, doing this through a quarantine and shelter in place and all that stuff. So uh, when this first kind of started in the news, have you been sort of surprised how long it's lasted and kind of the impact that it's had on you? Definitely. I'm, I'm totally surprised because I feel like when this is first hitting, hitting the news, I don't nec- I'm not necessarily a big news watcher. I scroll through the th- things that interest me on the news feed, you know, on the phone news or Google news. But um, I was on vacation visiting some friends in Florida and we happened to be watching TV maybe, I don't know, mid-February time and they were showing Wuhan and they were building like a, a special hospital for people with this new virus. And they were supposed to be done this hospital in a few days and seemed like they had everything under control. So I was thinking that it was going to be kind of like when SARS and MERS had happened a number of years ago and that, you know, there's a smattering of disease in some places, people move around and then they kind of handle it and it falls by the wayside. So I never really thought that it would be affecting our lives like this at all. I mean, it's crazy how it's, it's normal that people are wearing masks everywhere and have to remember to pack your, your mask. I it's interesting how fast you can adopt to it being your normal, but I think in looking back, probably in some months or years, you won't believe it. Yeah, it's been surprising for me, and I guess in time we'll we'll find out whether we overreacted or underreacted. Um, but it's been uh, it's been different to say the least. Now, uh, have you been able to keep yourself occupied, and do you have any new activities that you've gotten yourself into? Well, I feel like in in normal non quarantine life, I probably have a, a zillion hobbies, like a zillion more hobbies than your average person. So you might think that in quarantine, I don't know, I'd be doing all that and more, especially because it seems like people who just usually like to hang out in their free time are adopting all these crazy hobbies. But I will say that like I I signed up for some of those massive open online courses at the beginning of quarantine, signed in for a couple days, and then not really after that. I don't know. I feel like I like the social interaction of going into the office and interacting with a lot of people that energizes me. So just kind of being at home, I feel kind of bummed out and less motivated. So, um, but I try not to like hang around in sweatpants and whatnot. So, I mean, that's, that I feel is enough. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's the weather too, you know, not only you inside, but we've had, you know, May was cold and it's been snowing and it's just really, uh, puts the knife into you a little bit. It's been tough in Buffalo. Um, but uh, last question on this, uh, at what point do you feel safe going out? Are you uh, content with, with going out soon? Are you going to wear a mask? I mean, have you thought through that? Well, I don't know. I feel like I, ha- I haven't been out very much. Um, 
I have been to some stores. I've like walked to the CVS down, down the street, which has been, I feel like fairly normal. Like it's never crowded. So you don't have people like yelling at you. So I've had some comfort level with that. Um, I've gone to like a couple grocery stores, although not Wegmans, because I heard you can only go one way down the aisle. And I did, again, I didn't want to be yelled at by people. Um, but I'm hoping that in the coming weeks, with the formal quarantine ending in a lot of regions, that things will start to be a little bit more open. And I feel like you'd have a comfort level if things are officially open. I mean, I wouldn't want to go to a big party where someone invited everyone on the block. But to at least be, you know, being able to go about my normal routine and interacting with people in person, I'm hoping maybe next two, three, four weeks as things open up, I'd be happy going out again. Yeah, cool. Well, we're all hoping that this uh, ends sooner rather than later. But why don't we talk about some things that are maybe more uh, uplifting, which is you're a Fredonia girl. You grew up in Fredonia. And uh, I guess that brings up the question, does that make you a country girl? Did you grow up with... uh, farms and pigs and all that kind of stuff you know it's funny my sister and i we kind of refer to ourselves as um like country mice who always wanted to be city mice uh because even for like all the traveling i do and stuff i do feel like i'm somehow like a, a country person not that i want to be I mean, my sister and I, we, we always wish that we lived in, in some big city. I mean, the grass is always greener, you know? You always want to kind of be on the other side of things. But um, I feel like some of my friends and family from the Fredonia area refer to us as like farm people, which I very much reject. But maybe just in denial. I mean, I didn't grow up on a farm, but it's in my friend's head farm. So uh, we had a windmill. I will say that. So a little bit country. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. I mean, Fredonia, I think most people, uh, it's where the, the Buffalo Bills used to have their training camp back in yep. the day. And then there's uh, Fredonia State College. And that's, I think, where you went to school, right, as undergraduate? Yes. Yes. Um, I feel like uh, a fair number of people um, from the Fredonia area end up going there. It's just easy. I did live on campus, though, so I feel like I could have been a million miles away. Um, so that was nice. I feel like it would have been a much different experience living at home and then just like driving a mile and going to college. So it's nice to actually be there and be able to have your own kind of social ecosystem away from, you know, your parents. Right. Now, if, if I went back in time to 2007 Hillary and uh, I went to Fredonia, what percentage was uh, doing your schoolwork and what percentage was having a good time? <laughs> um, well, I feel like I took more than the average course load, so I did get my work done. But other than getting my work done, I feel like my friends and I, we were always um, going to theme parties. I remember winning an award for having the best costumes for theme parties, like over a whole year, uh, which is to love stuff like that. So probably more, I feel like, the social aspect I spent time on. But it's not like I didn't graduate. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. Well, you, uh, you eventually did make it out of Fredonia. You've done a whole bunch of world traveling. I think you were in uh, maybe Greece at one point. Um, mm-hmm. What were some of your, your favorite places to travel and, and why, is that, why is that your sort of favorite place or different places that you've liked? I think that my, my favorite place is I had one in a safari uh, a number of years ago. I don't know, maybe, maybe four or five years ago. 
And the whole reason I was even interested in that is so in our Toastmasters Club had mentioned this series of books. They're kind of like light, silly books um, about a woman in Botswana who opens a detective agency. And I don't know, I kind of think of them like a light Nancy Drew for adults, like not kind of escapism. And so the person who had written them, he had, I think, lived in Botswana. So I just decided that that was somewhere that would be really cool to go. So, and then I was reading and what they're known for safaris and things. So where, what I think is kind of the coolest place and my favorite place in the world, there's a city where people kind of all gather to go on safaris. Um, I would say it's a small kind of dusty village. There isn't a lot there. Maybe it secretly reminds me of Fredonia because I feel like there's like <laughs> grocery store, like a couple hotels, gas station, a couple restaurants and not much else. So it was just kind of a cool place to be, to be kind of like on the edge of all of this jungle and kind of in the middle of nowhere and still meeting like a, I don't know, like a wide variety of, of people. Um, it was just kind of a, an interesting juxtaposition to be so far away in this little town and then having, you know, like giraffes and elephants and stuff roaming around just like a couple miles away. Um, but I'd say a negative of that was they had a lot of uh, roundabouts. And I don't know if you're one of those people, Adam, who likes roundabouts. I think you would be in the minority of human beings who drive, but um, they drive on the other side of the road there because they used to be, like, have some involvement with, maybe they were a British colony, something like that. So I was trying to drive around these roundabouts, which I feel like are already confusing, and on the other side of the road, and things were rough. <laughs> I don't know why they had so many roundabouts. I guess I need to become the mayor there and, and just make it normal in their perceptions. <laughs> Man, Botswana. So I don't, I don't even know if our listeners could uh, pick that out on a map somewhere. How, how did you get there? Did you go to New York and then have to get a direct flight? Or what was that like? Well, <laughs> there were some misadventures there. I feel like with any travel you plan yourself, which I, <laughs> I always do, there's enough information on the internet. But so um, I had flown to South Africa. And there you can fly, I don't know, I think it was Toronto or New York City to Amsterdam and then um, Amsterdam to Johannesburg, I think is like one of the big kind of flights. So I had like looked at a map and decided that flights to go from Johannesburg to Maun in Botswana, I don't know like how many hours away it was exactly. So maybe let's say... Mm, like a flight would have been maybe 90 minutes or two hours, but like a flight was like $600 a person. And I thought, well, that's just like ridiculous. I'm just going to rent a car and drive there. I hate road trips, by the way. Let me just, let me just add that. Um, <laughs> but I decided that that would be the most, most economical way. Um, so I rented a car in Johannesburg and drove what it effectively ended up being from one edge of Botswana, like the southern tip of it, like all the way to the top in the north. Um, and it was a crazy road trip because the biggest hazard was that there were just so many animals roaming, not like jungle animals necessarily. They're known for cattle. They're like a big, a beef eating place and beef raising place. And they'd just be, ran there'd just be random animals roaming on the road. And like, that was a big cause of accidents. And you'd see a sign that there would be like ostriches here, warning. Um, uh, ostriches were one, like warthogs, elephant crossing, giraffes. Like, it was crazy, the signs inside the road. Uh, so it was dusty and it was boring. And on the radio, they just had like Beyonce I, you know, I th and gospel music. 
It's very strange. It's quite the adventure. <laughs> Beyonce is everywhere, so I guess that shouldn't have been a surprise. Now, uh, this is probably a stereotype, but I think if you told people you went to Africa, uh, they might think that maybe it's unsafe or sort of a, you know, an area of the world that's been uh, kind of in war and different bad things happening. Was there ever, uh, did you see any of that or was that a concern of yours before you went over there? You know, Botswana wasn't like that. It's one of the most sparsely populated countries in the world. People just hitchhike. Like, it's normal. I don't know. There's just, like, not a lot of people there. Not a lot of people to be afraid of, I guess. But um, when I was in Johannesburg, I think that's one of the few places that I probably would not go back to. Um, so I feel that it was kind of a, a nerve-wracking place to be because even because uh, I drove two bots on a all the way to Mount and then back. So when I was returning to the car, they were like, it was, you know, like a normal part of town, a normal time of day. But like a lot of unsavory characters trying to um, come up to your car and like bang on the windows at like stoplights. Um, people trying to get you to give the, the keys to the car where you were returning it. It was like kind of like an underground mall. It was, a sketch, you know, kind of like a sketchy situation, not like going to the Buffalo airport, returning your car. Um, and most restaurants and things closed at five or six. You, so you really couldn't leave. Um, and we were staying at a bed and breakfast and the proprietor of it, they give you like a panic button because they don't. And when you go to enter just like middle-class neighborhoods, there's guards and like tactical army gear, like the bullets, you know, like across their, their chest and everything and machine guns just patrolling a regular middle-class neighborhood just because there's so much crime. So um, I really didn't like when I was returning the car and people were like coming up to you. That wasn't fun, but it was a very strange situation to go somewhere that you thought was going to be cool and to have to like order takeout. Oh, it was like being quarantined or an order takeout and just like hang out at your hotel when you thought you'd be having these like cool adventures. But um, <laughs> quarantine life. Johannesburg are here. <laughs> See, now Fredonia doesn't seem so bad when you told us all about <laughs> <It doesn't>. that. <laughs> Wide uh, open spaces, freedom. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Well, uh, maybe someday we'll have to get into that in more detail. That's uh, a lot of excitement. But why don't we segue into this? I know one of your favorite things to do is cooking. And uh, you've something that uh, you've shared with our Toastmasters Club. So let's start with this. Where did this sort of, uh, we'll say, interesting cooking begin? And... Um, I'm assuming it was in your uh, your mother's kitchen in Fredonia where it started. Yeah, she actually hates to cook, and so does my grandmother. And I was um, always getting in trouble for trying to cook things because she liked the kitchen to be spotless. So I don't know if it was kind of a, a situation where you're told that you can't do something, so it just seems awesome. But yeah, no one in my family likes cooking. Um, I remember one of my aunts had bought me like a kid's cookbook and maybe that's where it all started. I was not allowed to really make anything in cookbook and, and a mess up the kitchen. <laughs> but it just kind of took off from there. But <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, you would think that, you know, to be like, you know, your mom, your grandmother or someone would, would sort of be that influence. But it's kind of interesting that it was just sort of almost self-grown in a way. Um, yeah. What, uh, what are your, some of your favorite things to cook? Oh, I'd say um, it, it depends. I feel like I have like different different obsessions at different times, but I love to cook Mexican. I don't know if you have ever uh, watched PBS. There's this cooking show 
Patty's Mexican table. She cooks like real Mexican stuff, not like Taco Bell tacos, but um, you know, different stews and soups. And she like travels around, makes things. I love cooking. Um, I feel like time consuming Mexican things that I see her make is a lot of fun. Um, and I gotten before quarantine started, I knew all this was going to happen. I gotten this, the mastery of stir fry book. So I don't know that I've mastered stir frying, but, uh, that's been kind of exciting because it's, it's like a bunch of recipes from different home cooks, but they've tested them. So they work at least the couple things I've made. So it's not, you know, like someone's grandmother who wrote down a recipe and spent all this time doing it. And then she left out an ingredient. So <laughs> Now, I, I want to say that uh, you told a story that uh, maybe it was Thanksgiving or some other type of event where uh, you wanted to do the cooking and uh, or you did cook something and maybe the family wasn't uh, totally on board with your uh, recipes and uh, dishes. Is that some pushback that you're too exotic? Um, that's every holiday and every family get together all the time. So but, <laughs> so, but something I feel like you should keep in mind, I feel like I grew up in a 1950s household where, like, uh, for, I don't know, my parents just didn't have an exact taste. They didn't grow up eating, I guess, even food that was not that exotic. I don't think I had Chinese food until I went to the mall with my, uh, one of my friends in, in like, high school. Um, we, didn't ha we didn't have, like, taco night. I feel like the most exotic thing that we had was spaghetti and spaghetti from a can was and still is served uh in my family's household have you had it have you seen spaghetti meatballs in a can <laughs> i have That's seen where it. The whole spaghetti <laughs> i've seen it my parents have talked about it but i've never had the pleasure of eating it so <laughs> like I, I i can't believe i grew up eating that uh maybe i could be taller <laughs> real, real food um but I tell you, that's, that's kind of like the, the taste, I guess. That is okay to them. So even though um, I try to, like, say, just make some kind of standard meals uh, for my family, like, they don't like cheese. Um, they don't like nuts and things. Some members of my family don't like onions or they don't like garlic. And, like, that's, that's, in like, everything. <laughs> that's in like everything. So I guess um, I do some other family members who don't believe in spices. Uh, that's their party line. So, I mean, it's just like a tough crowd, but I will say that, um, my sister and, and my friends and they have like more modern tastes and they like things that I cook, but family is just too hard to please. That 1950s, just very Plainsville mentality. I didn't even really think that they still sold spaghetti in a can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they do. I actually had uh, taken some from my parents and given it to one of my friends and her husband because they didn't believe it existed. <laughs> I, I think this is around Christmas time. I'll have to ask her, but I guarantee they have not opened it and probably donated it to someone because they probably thought it was so strange. <laughs> I was say, it makes for a great exchange gift, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Um, all right, why don't we get into our last topic here, Toastmasters. That's uh, where you and I met. You've been a member for a long time. You've been uh contests and really an accomplished speaker yourself so what was sort of the, the catalyst for that why you joined why you felt you needed to join and um how that kind of started for you yeah so i had ended up joining um i i taken a public speaking class in, in college but we were forced to so that, that was okay that wasn't super scary to me but it wasn't something i really thought i'd need 
But then when I was going to grad school at NU, for whatever reason, the professors must have all gotten together and decided that they just didn't want to grade papers. I don't know, because pretty much everything there, uh, at least the time when I had gone, was they wanted group presentations. And that was just how the grade was going to be. So even though I wasn't terrified of public speaking or anything, I certainly didn't want, you know, to go in really fresh um, and have that be my grade and everything. And I remembered hearing about a Toastmasters club, but I just really remember the name. I didn't even know what they, they did um, because I, I was imagining people like toasting like you would, you know, like at a wedding or whatever, thinking like, who are these people and why do they need to practice toasting things so much? But for whatever reason, I connected, um, you know, with the Toastmasters website and thought, hey, I'll, I'll check this out. But it's, it's been a lot of fun to hear people's stories, to, to get the practice uh, in front of people who are speaking. So I feel like it's, it's a niche hobby, but it's a really cool club. Yeah, and, and uh, you probably feel the same way. After a while, you kind of like being on stage and you like giving speeches. And uh, I think people listening would probably think that we're both a little bit crazy for uh, liking to get up in front of groups and talking. Uh, but what have you found that has been able to help you get over that fear? Because I'm sure people listening are like, you know, I can't do that because I'm just too afraid to do it. Is there anything that you found that's been successful for you? I think just the attending the club meetings and seeing other people get up and everyone makes mistakes. And even though in any club you'll really see, I, I'd say at any point in time, a variety of experience. You'll have some newbies and some people who are experienced. You know, you can identify with people as you move along your speaking journey. You can see people go up there and it's their first speech and kind of falter and feel connected with that. And even if you have a hard time, everyone in that room has been there. Everyone in that room is putting themselves out there with speaking, which I feel like is a, a lot different than, say, being in a classroom or at work, where maybe you're giving your presentation, everyone else is, is judging and might not be speaking. It's so different when everyone's going through that with you in the club. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing that people are worried about being judged and, you know, what other people will say. And so, therefore, they don't give speeches because, well, what if someone doesn't like my, my speech? So. Um, but anyway, has there been a, a particular speech topic that you've kind of gravitated to or a particular speech that you're most proud of? I would say probably one of my speeches that I think was uh, the most fun. So this was a number of years ago. Um, I was driving to work um, through kind of a questionable neighborhood. And I saw, have you ever seen how some two-story old-style houses, they'll have like a, a fenced-in roof on the second floor, and like a little bit can be used like a balcony. Like it's not an official balcony, but maybe it's partially um, fenced in, like there's a balustrade. So I was driving to work many years ago, and I saw this poodle that had like come out of the second floor window. Maybe someone like left it open and jumped on something. And I walked out on the roof and the, the balustrade, the, the railings were very wide. And this is a very, it was like one of those small toy poodles. And I was really worried that this poodle was going to jump off the roof. So I don't even know what possessed me to do this, but I had, so I called the, you know, the animal people, whoever they are, whatever the emergency number is. So at least they knew about this because it didn't appear that anyone had any idea and this poodle could fall off this roof. 
Um, and no one would know what happened. So anyway, so I wrote a, a speech about it, but it was kind of a parody. It was called Poodle in Peril. And it was about how Mayor Byron Brown recognized my act of heroism and, and gave me a key to the city. So I had done a contest with that and uh, gone vacation to London and given that speech as well. I was really worried that the humor wouldn't translate. I don't remember how I had written the speech. Um, now it's, it's been a while, but I guess the people in England also understood that it could be a, a humorous situation or I guess a ridiculous situation to save a dog and be publicly recognized, you know, by the town mayor. But it did translate and it was a, it was a fun one. Yeah, that's a really fun story. Um, I actually Partially haven't heard that speech from you. <laughs> but uh, cool, that's really good. Um, all right, Hillary, well, before we let you go, we have uh, a segment called Quote of the Week on the podcast here, and we ask our guests what their favorite quote is and why it's their favorite quote. Uh, so do you have a quote that you typically like and what's your favorite quote? I have a, a quote, a quote of my own that I, I make fun of uh, with my friends because it's a ridiculous one. So <laughs> what it is, well, maybe it will mean something to some of your listeners, Adam. It's even Achilles has an Achilles heel uh, because. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. I like that. <laughs> I constantly try to work it into conversations and situations with my friends and family, and they think it's ridiculous, but I'm just saying it has some truth to it, right? And by using some, I feel like Greek mythology, it sounds like it could be from someone real. <laughs> hey, I, I like that quote, and that's a great way to finish. So, Hillary, thank you for uh, joining us, and for everyone listening, uh, we'll be posting this on Podbean, Twitter, Facebook, and... Um, Hillary, it was awesome. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Nice talking to you, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.